This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Mike Swell. He's the head of fixed income portfolio management at GSAM. That's Goldman Sachs Asset Management Group. They run over $700 billion just on the fixed income side. And man, let me tell you, this is a masterclass in fixed income investing. If you are interested in where to get yield, how to pursue it, what the risks are involved, where there are the best opportunities for fixed income investing, where you're not getting paid to take risk, uh, I don't even know what else to say. One of the most knowledgeable people I've ever heard in the fixed income space, I would imagine you probably have to know a thing or two if you're going to run fixed income for Goldman Sachs. Uh, absolutely must listen. A fascinating, fascinating conversation. I learned a ton of stuff, and I consider myself somewhat knowledgeable in the space. I think that I'm going to listen to this episode repeatedly uh, just because it was so dense and so filled with really fascinating information. He, he's had a really intriguing career um, and has really put up some incredible um, insight and, and lots of great numbers over the time. Uh, GSAM runs a, a variety of different mutual funds. There are five or so that uh, Swell is either in charge of supervising or a manager of or a co-manager of. Uh, so this isn't just abstract theory. He really is where the rubber meets the road. So with no further ado, my conversation with Mike Swell, the head of fixed income portfolio management for Goldman Sachs. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Mike Swell. He is the head of global fixed income portfolio management at Goldman Sachs, where he oversees about $700 billion in assets. He is also a managing director at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Michael Swell, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, uh, I want to thank you and thank Bloomberg for having me today. So let's talk a little bit about the early days. You graduated the London School of Economics in 1987. Do you remember what the yield was on the 10-year back then? Uh, it was meaningfully higher than it is today. I, 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 well, it's, it's, it's roughly zero today, so it's got to be a lot higher. I, I would say it was probably in the very high single digits, pushing up on 10%. I'll go 8 to 9%. Wow. So, so that was still fairly early in what turned out to be a very long bull market. What were those days like? Did anyone have any idea about the legs that the bond bull market would have? Well, I was still in college at the time, and so I actually um, was at LSE for a year and then uh, was at Brandeis University, got my bachelor's there. And while I was in London, I kind of got exposed to global markets, to fixed income. I saw a lot of people applying for internships uh, to Wall Street, and I said, hey, this sounds pretty good. It sounds competitive. Um, and so I, I then kind of applied to a program to get a master's in international finance at Brandeis. Um, so I had yet to know exactly what the bond market was until I started my career at Lehman Brothers in 1989. Um, and uh, it was a different world, I mean, in terms of liquidity, in terms of transparency. Back then, you had to wait until the next day to find out 
what happened with bond prices. Uh, you had this thing called tear sheets, pink sheets, and that was the way you learned about what was going on with companies and what was going on in terms of pricing in markets. Uh, so a very, very different world. The bond market wasn't the kind of primary market of liquidity like it is today and something that we talk about for 24 hours a day. Back then, probably if you had a, if you had a finance show like Bloomberg, you probably would have spent 10, 15 minutes on bonds and the rest was all on equities. What about execution? What was it like trying to move any sort of uh, paper around back then versus today? Uh Back then, it was obviously it was a phone-only market, so not an electronic market. Now, obviously, uh, you press a button and you can move billions of dollars of risk, and you can move billion dollars, billions of dollars of risk in multiple different markets with a touch of a button, whether it's the treasury market, the mortgage market, the corporate credit market, derivative market. But back then, it was a phone-to-phone negotiation. And very often, while there were some Wall Street players in between, typically what they would do is they would try to find a buyer on the other side. And so what now takes seconds, back then could have taken days to move, uh, to move risk. Um, just a, a very, very different world, bigger bid offer spreads. And so you didn't see as active trading in the fixed income markets as you see today. But the other side of that is that there was a lot more, a lot more yield. And with less transparency, there was a little more inefficiency. And if you were a, uh, um, a very active player, you know, the, the, the potential for generating uh, earnings and margins by trading bonds was actually um, pretty, uh, pretty attractive given how wide bid offer spreads were back then. So, so given how much more efficient the bond market has become, we continue to see active bond managers outperform passive indexes. That's the opposite of what we see on the equity side, where efficiencies have given the passive indexer um, a huge advantage. Why do active bond managers, uh, why are they still capable of beating the passive indexes when their um, equity cohorts can't? There are a number of different reasons. There is a lack of homogeneity in the bond market. And so if you think about something as clear as the treasury market, there's on-the-run treasuries, there's off-the-run treasuries. There's 14-year treasuries, there's 30-year treasuries. They trade at very, very different levels. Uh, you also have um, a index that is very, very um, uh, transparent in terms of what is in the index. And there's a lot of ability to be able to purchase securities that are outside of your index, very different than what's in the equity market. Typically, what's in the equity market and what's in your index is what is your investable universe. Within the bond market, there are many, many different sectors that sit outside of the, uh, outside of the universe. The other thing is that given that the indices are very transparent, there's a market segmentation issue that goes on in bonds uh, where um, you have some investors that buy the index. They have to buy the Barclays Ag. They have to buy the long corporate index because they're a pension fund. Very, very um, significant market segmentation issues that creates inefficiencies. So when there's enormous amount of demand for one type of asset, um, you can actually buy something that is meaningfully, meaningfully cheaper. So if everybody has to, if everyone has a limitation that they can only buy five-year credit or shorter, well, if you buy six-year corporate credit in a year, it becomes five-year corporate credit. Very often, that six-year bond will trade very cheap to the five-year because there are a lot of investors that can't buy it. Same thing in the, if you think about the 
credit ratings. Um, uh, most investors, particularly in the U.S., can only buy investment-grade corporate credit. And that's what the index, the index is um, typically an investment-grade credit index. But um, when there are opportunities in the double B sector or in the high yield sector, you have a lot of investors that are limited in terms of their guidelines and limited in terms of the amount of capital they could deploy to lower lower credit related assets. And so as a result, not as many buyers. So you as an active manager, when you see a, uh, a disparity, when there's a 3B bond out there that might yield 150 basis points over treasuries, but a 2B bond market, so a double B bond that might yield 350 or 400 basis points over, well, the difference in leverage between a double B company and a triple B company is pretty limited. So active managers can really take advantage of that. Another area is um, the agency mortgage market is a very big part of um, the global indices, the U.S., the Bloomberg Index in the U.S., um, and it's a very... Um, heterogeneous market. Uh, there are different coupons and different types of securities in that market. So there's a great ability that if you have expertise in terms of understanding prepayment risk, which is the biggest risk that um, occurs in agency mortgages, you can buy securities that can perform a lot better than the indices. So there are many different reasons why in fixed income active managers have consistently outperformed. And I think that also is an important point when you think about um, ETFs as well. Well, ETFs have grown very, very significantly in the uh, in, in, in the equity market, it's been a little bit slower in the fixed income market. And the reasons that we're talking about right now in that active managers have more consistently beat uh, indices is a reason why it's been slower in fixed income. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Let, let's stick a little bit um, with your career for a bit. Um, you leave Lehman Brothers early 90s, long before they get into trouble, and eventually end up at um, Friedman Billings Ramsey's. Is that right? Yeah, I spent a, a lot of years at Freddie Mac um, in Washington, D.C., in, in the mortgage market, securitizing mortgages, trading mortgage securities, working very closely with originators, and then transferred that risk to a firm that was getting involved in the, in, in the REIT market and particularly in the, uh, in the subprime mortgage market. So uh, th- those were kind of where the bulk of my, um, my career was prior to getting to Goldman Sachs. Right. And you joined Goldman in 07 to run the structured products um, group. And if memory serves correctly, uh, mortgages had already peaked and were rolling over by 07. Your charge was to look across the spectrum uh, at opportunistically at fixed income products and alternative um, portfolios. Is it exaggerating to say it was fish in the barrel or had it not quite gotten uh, that attractive yet? Actually, my, my timing was the opposite of fish in the barrel. So the mortgage market didn't start rolling over until the end of 07 and, and mainly in 2008. And so my, my, my mandate when I got to Goldman was to actually look at the structured product market from an issuer standpoint. So there was an enormous amount of CDO and CLO issuance. Um, the goal was to look at those markets to become a manager. Uh, and when, when I got there and did a lot of the work, we said, you know what, this is not actually a good investment for investors. They're levering up an asset that has, has you know, appreciated massively, and there's no return here for investors, and there's risk. And so um, basically, um, in 07, the CDO-CLO market also at the same time kind of shut down, and I was left with kind of nothing to do. And so I had to reinvent myself. And, and one of the things that's very 
important for people in this in, in this industry and in any industry is always be flexible to reinvent yourself. And so the crisis occurred, CDO market, CLO market shut down, but the assets became very distressed, and there was a great opportunity to uh, start investing in those areas. So I went from trying to be an issuer in that market to being a distressed investor. Let's talk a little bit about the demand for bonds these days. You recently said you see, quote, enormous demand for U.S. fixed income. Explain. So people would think that with rates pushing on zero, uh, with um, kind of uh, recovery in the uh, future in 2001, 2021, 2022, that bonds would be completely out of vogue and you know, a lot of concern around eventual inflation in the U.S. and rising rates, I would say to that, forget about it for a number of years. There is an enormous amount of demand for yield. There are, there's an enormous amount of savings that exists. There's an enormous amount of market segmentation that exists on a global basis with investors, where investors, a lot of investors do not have the option to go into alternatives or to go into equities. They are fixed income investors. Obviously, retirees, conservative, can't take the volatility of owning equities. They need to, they need to generate income to live. You have insurance companies that predominantly invest in, in, in fixed income. They write policies and they buy fixed income assets on the other side of that. There's also a regulatory reason why um, uh, you find that uh, insurance companies buy fixed income assets. Same thing with uh, commercial banks. Commercial banks buy fixed income. Um, so I, I think that there's going to be an enormous amount of demand for yield. And you have to, to some degree, look outside the United States when you think about investing. You can't just rely upon what you may think investors might do in your country. We have very, very global, fungible markets now. And so the fact that rates are negative in Europe, rates are negative in Japan, that creates an enormous amount of demand for uh, for yield. We think the U.S. market, although we think the yields are very low, it's kind of like the, we're, we're kind of the, the um, uh, 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 ugly, prettiest in an ugly contest to a certain degree in that our yields at 2, 3, 4% across different markets in the U.S. actually look very attractive to non-U.S. investors. So we think the story for the next couple of years is going to be demand for yield because we think rates are going to stay extremely low across the globe and do not fight the Fed. Um, That's a very important investment thesis. You're almost always right to not fight the Fed. The Fed has been very, very clear. Rates are going to stay lower for an extended period of time to get average inflation meaningfully higher, number one. And number two, there's been a recognition that the full employment rate is not what you think it is, that there are a lot of people that have been displaced from the, the job market, haven't come back in a long period of time. You need to keep rates low to incentivize companies to actually try to go in and, and hire those people and to get people kind of better paying jobs than uh, where a lot of people are right now. And so I think that the move from the Fed uh, th- uh, this year around, number one, moving to more of an average inflation target, and secondly, the discussion around what really full employment is, is likely to lead the Fed to be very, very easy for an extended period of time, which is going to mean low rates, and yield is going to come at a significant premium. So let's take a look at that exact issue from the perspective of the average investor. Where does someone who does not have those restrictions that a, uh, a public pension fund or a foundation might have, where do they go if they're looking for more yield but without taking the sort of crazy risk 
that got people into trouble in 0809? So I think there there are a few different places. I, I think um, number one, I, I think that um, individual investors still benefit significantly from owning long dated municipals. So as an individual, I would own um, a good chunk of my uh, uh, my fixed income allocation in high quality long dated municipals. They're trading at very comparable yields to where treasuries are, and obviously. Taxes are not going down. Taxes are likely to be going up. Um, and so there's a significant benefit there. Um, and I think we're very confident from a credit standpoint in terms of higher quality investment grade munis that you're not talking about a significant credit risk. Secondly, is within the kind of the, the, the Bloomberg aggregate world where most fixed income lies in, in kind of the core intermediate fixed income space, there are a lot of things to, to do to do better than the 1% that exists in treasuries. Um, number one is uh, uh, there's, the, there's credit. So we think that the credit market, like the 2021, is setting up to be a phenomenal year for credit. Um, obviously, credit spreads have come back a lot since the COVID shock, but we feel that the combination of low rates as well as fiscal stimulus and recovery post-COVID is going to lead to a, an extremely attractive market for credit. So number one is moving down a little bit in quality and credit um, within uh, the unconstrained space, moving a little bit into high yield. And as I mentioned before, we think the double Bs offer a very significant yield pickup relative to owning kind of triple Bs in investment grade. Secondly is leverage loans. Um, this is an asset class that's been in outflow um, since I've been in the business. Uh, leverage loans are higher quality from a credit standpoint than high-yield credit. Um, they have a feature that uh, works for investors sometimes, but not, not other times. And so they're floating rate in nature. A lot of investors have bought them because they were concerned about rising rates. Despite the fact that they're floating rate, and I mentioned the point that rates are likely to stay low for an extended period of time, they offer an extremely attractive level of carry, 4 or 5%, without taking, as you mentioned, kind of crazy, crazy risk. Second, another point on top of kind of um, having a little bit more credit exposure in your portfolio and long-dated munis is agency mortgages. And I kind of view them as a, um, a, a way to barbell your portfolio. And this is what we're doing in our core bond portfolios, our traditional Bloomberg aggregate portfolios. We're barbelling um, double B credit bank loans along with agency mortgages. Agency mortgages, either guaranteed or implicit guaranteed from the government. What you're doing effectively is you're um, taking a spread for owning prepayment risk. Uh, and our view is that number one is that we feel that prepayment risk is, 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 is coming down. But secondly, and this is a really interesting point, is that mortgages offer you um, a hedge. And one of the topics I know that we're going to talk today about a little bit is the 60-40 kind of balance, and do we still feel the 60-40 makes sense, and that you're getting kind of hedge benefits of being in fixed income. Agency mortgages are one of the securities where you actually are. And the reason for that is that you have a Fed that is buying the securities. And so in the event that the U.S. economy goes south, um, credit spreads potentially widen, you see the agency mortgages are an asset class that the Fed is likely to buy and drive down that yield very significantly. So we think it's a very important policy tool. And so buying on the fringe, buying what the Fed's not buying, number one, which is double Bs and, uh, and, and bank loans, and pairing that with what the Fed is and can buy a lot more of, which is agency mortgages. Hmm. That, that's quite interesting. Uh, I had a pet theory a couple of years ago that 
there was a shortage of high-quality sovereign bonds. Um, and a number of people in the bond side of things told me, yeah, there's just insatiable demand for paper and there isn't uh, that much of it. Is that still the case? Are we seeing enough high-quality sovereign paper out there to meet the demand? I, I, um, I don't believe that there's a shortage of bonds. There's a shortage of bonds at good prices. <laughs> So I, there's, that's a that's a that's a you know it's it, it sounds kind of silly but it's 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 actually uh, an important difference you know the ECB talked a lot about is there a shortage of bonds for them to buy to implement monetary policy and QE right. uh, and the answer is no just raise your price and that's what they've done and that's why yields in Europe are negative what they're doing is they're driving. Sovereign yields down to the point where you are forced to sell them and do something else with it. What are you doing else with it? You can buy equities, and some people are doing that, and rebalancing portfolios and buying equities. And that obviously has a stimulative effect on the economy. And secondly is what they're doing is they're forcing people out on the risk spectrum within fixed income to buy credit. So to answer your question, I don't think there's a shortage. I think in some markets there's a shortage of good prices. But I do feel that this movement to the next best asset class, which is what central banks want people to do, that there's enough yield and enough attractive opportunities. I think that um, keeping your money in your own market when the central bank is manipulating the price, I think that that's something to kind of think about. So you have obviously U.S. rates really low, European rates really low, and Japanese rates really low. It's because the central banks are trying to create um, uh, stimulus in the economy by keeping rates artificially low. But there are other markets out there that are not as heavily impacted by central bank policy. So one of the things that we're doing in portfolios is not just keeping all of our rate exposure in those markets, but diversifying into some of the higher yielding markets. And so if you look at um, rates in Australia, rates in Canada, uh, rates in, uh, in, in Sweden, you have m- Norway, much steeper yield curves, and the ability to be able to actually generate yield on the longer end of those curves, the importance of that is around hedge efficacy. At zero, you don't feel like you have a lot of upside if the world goes bad in your bond portfolio. But if you're yielding one, one, one and a half percent, you obviously have a lot more upside. And then lastly, diversifying a little bit into some of the higher quality emerging markets. Um, a country like Mexico has meaningfully higher both nominal rates and real rates than the U.S. And active managers can look at that and say, okay, what is the risk of investing in Mexico? Do I want to hold the currency risk or not? But I actually have a real positive real rate. And in the event that the U.S. slows, well, then it's likely that Mexico slows, and you should see kind of a rally and accommodate a policy in, in both countries, more room to rally in a country like Mexico. So getting a little bit more diversified in your sovereign exposure, um, we think, makes a lot of sense. So over the weekend, I read this really interesting piece uh, on Bloomberg, China opens its bond market with unknown consequences for the world. So, so let's, uh, let's look at that. What does it mean that China's opening their bond market? And what might that mean to global interest rates? So um, you asked you know, the, the, the question earlier about the shortage of, of high-quality bonds. By seeing liberalization in China and expansion of issuance from the Chinese government, from high-quality Chinese corporates into the global markets, creating more access and more liquidity, clearly is going to be good for investors and savers. Uh, and it can potentially 
crowd out some of the investment that's been made in in um, other high quality markets. So if you look at Europe at negative or zero rates, you look at the U.S. at very low rates. Um, you look at Japan. If you create more liquidity and more access to Chinese sovereign bonds that are right now yielding three and a quarter, three and a half percent, that may actually eventually crowd out other investors. You also look at the um, Bloomberg Global aggregate index, it has a pretty high percentage of China in it, and it's growing. And so as a result, it can actually be a a yield enhancer for investors, but on the margin, it could have some negative um, implications to sovereign bond markets where yields are so low. Um, We've actually um, think that uh, the liberalization of the Chinese capital markets is a net-net a good thing. It's a good thing for investors. Um, The Chinese bond market's actually pretty attractive at those kind of yields where the central bank and the that there is a slowdown globally or a slowdown in China, um, you have China in a very different policy position than the U.S., Europe, and Japan. And so you have a lot of ability for rates to go down in, in, uh, in China. And now that you have more access, we think that's a big positive. We think it's been such an important um, change in the capital markets. We actually have issued an ETF um, in, in, um, in, in the non-U.S. market to get people access to the Chinese bond market because it's very hard for people to get uh, direct exposure. But as they liberalized clearing and custodial issues, um, it's going to become a a very important part of the broader capital markets. Mike, let's talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve. I keep reading uh, people saying that the Federal Reserve is, you know, destroying purchasing power, damaging the dollar and driving rates to zero. But I'm compelled to ask the question, how influential is the Federal Reserve in setting longer-term interest rates? So, on your first question, there's no free lunch when it comes to policy. When it comes to policy, it's all about trade-offs. It's about what environment are we in and what risk do I want to protect against. And so when the Fed makes a decision to keep rates low for an extended period of time, it does have negative implications. It does hurt savers. Uh, it does hurt banks. Uh, but they're looking at a crisis situation. The COVID shock was a real, real crisis situation. They were concerned that you'd see capital markets completely shut, companies' access to debt and equity financing pretty much gone, and that could lead to a really, really bad economic scenario. And if we look at 0708 financial crisis, the Fed was a lot slower to act. They were um, uh, slower. They, they, they acted in, to a smaller degree in terms of lowering rates. They acted to a smaller degree in terms of purchasing assets. And we're still feeling the pain of that as a result of the fact that we did not see a V-shaped recovery. We saw a very, very slow recovery, and it was very, very tough for companies to start spending again, to start raising capital again. The Fed learned their lesson. And so in this COVID shock, they came in really big. They drove rates down to zero, and they bought everything. And they bought more than they ever bought in the past, and they bought different asset classes, including removing the freeze from the credit markets. Very, very important. Now, it doesn't come without a cost, but they had to do it, and we're still in the shock. We still have companies that haven't opened. We have um, companies on the brink of potential bankruptcy. So the need for keeping rates lower, keeping capital markets open, is it's, it's, it's a trade-off. And so there's no kind of perfect answer, but from my perspective, they've done the right thing. Now, to answer your the second part of your question is – 
The Fed, in this case, and in a crisis situation, they've had an impact on interest rates across the entire curve. So not only have they, um, you know, their, their main policy tool is obviously the short-term rate. So there they have a lot of control. And typically, you would see five-year rates, 10-year rates, and 30-year rates would be driven by economic supply-demand factors. In this case, the, the, the Fed has become um, big across the entire curve. Obviously, when you introduce QE, QE um, uh, not only impacts short end, but QE is buying bonds and driving yields lower. And so they've had an impact across the entire curve. That's not the long-term goal. I would expect to see uh, the supply demand, inflation to be the bigger drivers on the long end of the curve. And, and over a long period of time, the Fed is going to have much more control over the short end, and the long end is going to be driven by, uh, by other factors. But in a crisis, the Fed has um, done the right thing and has um, impacted rates across the entire curve. Let's assume that Janet Yellen gets approved by the Senate for Treasury Secretary. What do you think of this combination of Janet Yellen at Treasury and Jerome Powell at the Fed? What does that mean for fixed income investors? So we were uh, fortunate enough a couple weeks ago before uh, Chair Yellen was uh, announced uh, as the potential uh, replacement for uh, for Treasury. Uh, we had her in our, our daily investment forum, uh, where the equity fixed income teams and the alternative teams meet every day to discuss markets. We were fortunate enough to have her in, and I think based on her history and that conversation that between her and Powell, you, we have the dynamic duo. We have people that completely understand um, capital markets and the impact that capital markets have on the real economy. Uh, we have people that understand how um, politics work. I think um, Janet Yellen's experience at the Fed will um, has definitely sensitized her to the importance of, 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 of fiscal policy. She was not in control of fiscal policy, but right now you have two people that have been at the center of um, major, major crises um, global crises and U.S. crises that are going to be um, responsible for both the monetary and the fiscal side. I view that as the dynamic duo. And so one of the reasons why we're very constructive on kind of the, the credit markets and vol, both equity vol and, and, and credit vol uh, and rate vol staying relatively low for the next couple of years is that with the two of them in office, we think you'll have a really good balance of, of, of relatively easy monetary policy as well as enough fiscal stimulus to um, uh, keep the engine going, um, which we think will be a, a very good environment for credit. Now, in the end, fiscal and monetary policy are not going to drive companies' profitability. It's going to be the economy. And so the ability for them to be successful in driving the economy, I think that the, the jury's out on that one, but I don't think we could have done much better than the two of them. So, so let's just talk about fiscal policy for a moment. We saw a huge difference between what happens uh, with the CARES Act and that $3 trillion stimulus plan back in March of this year, 2020, versus the sort of very low-key fiscal stimulus of 0809. Um, it was it was much more focused on unfreezing the credit markets and um, managing rates than it was doing a traditional Keynesian stimulus. Since March of this year, there have been repeated rumors of the CARES Act II uh, passing. I would have bet anything that before the election, everybody involved would want to pass another stimulus, but that would have been a losing bet. It, it raises the question, if, if we couldn't get stimulus through 
pre-election, are we going to see any sort of real stimulus in the new Biden administration? So um, I would have lost the bet as well. There, there were too many incentives to um, get a package done prior to the election, obviously two, three months ago. It didn't happen. Um, it, it's really a sign, not that it wasn't needed, but it was a sign of, of, of how bad the political environment is in Washington. Um, I think as we go into the new year, I think that the need is very material. Um, just because we've seen good news on the vaccine front, it doesn't mean that the real economy problems go away um, in um, in short order, you still have individuals, uh, a lot of people that are out of work, that are furloughed. Uh, you still have people that are struggling to make um, house payments, uh, and you know any sort of significant deterioration in housing credit has its own implications. Um, and then you have also a very significant amount of food insecurity in this country, where people are lining up for hours to get food. That's not where our country needs to be. And so I think that the incentives are likely to be aligned to pass something. It's likely not to be as big as um, what we thought about um, last year in terms of a $3 billion package. But I think that you're likely to see something, obviously, higher probability, depending on what happens in Georgia, if the Democrats do well there. But even if we're in a, in a 52-48 um, Senate situation, I think we're going to see something. It's, it's, the need is too great, and I think the incentives are um, too greatly, uh, greatly aligned. So not a three trillion dollar package, but something somewhat, you know, a trillion, a trillion, or so. a trillion, a trillion area. Right, a trillion here, a trillion there. It all, it all adds up eventually. The timing really matters. <clears throat> like there, there are a lot of people in this country that need it. There are a lot of companies that need the bridge to the other side, and the bridge that was given with the fiscal policy number one is over. And so, um, and again, back to my point is that. Good vaccine news in the lab doesn't mean everybody's getting back to work tomorrow. It's going to take one to two years until, you know, uh, we really see the world and the, the, the economic engine um, purring the way that we did uh, a couple years back. And so uh, we, we need a little help to get there. Huh, to say the least. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the fixed income market. What do we think of the yield curve these days? Does it still signal anything? What were your thoughts when it inverted not too long before this uh, recession began last year? I kind of love how people in the financial markets look to the bond people as the smart people and say that bond people not only should know where bond prices are, but should know where <laughs> equity prices are and where the economy is going. And, and so they think that we, we are, you know, we, we really can predict via what we think of 30-year bonds versus what we think of two-year bonds. And what I'll tell you is that we're not that smart. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, I think that the historical analysis of yield curves and how they predict um, equities and economic growth is has been way overstated, particularly in an environment, as we've been discussing on this podcast, around massive, massive central bank intervention, both from a policy rate perspective as well as from a uh, QE perspective in terms of buying assets. It's hard to look at the shape of the yield curve as a predictor for much right now, given the amount of, number one, government intervention. And secondly is you have to keep in mind that there is massive, massive investor segmentation going on in the fixed income markets where 
Um, there are a lot of investors that, uh, like pension funds in the United States, pension funds in the United States buy long-dated fixed income to match against their liabilities. No matter what the shape of the yield curve, they were buying them when the curve was flat. They're buying them when the curve is steep. Um, same thing with corporations that have been sitting on enormous amounts of cash uh, as they've issued a ton of debt and are doing nothing with it because they just want to be able to um, bridge across the COVID crisis to when the economy kind of re- re- reopens, they're buying very short-dated assets, uh, and so all the cash is going there. So I think that it's very hard to look at the yield curve given, given the environment we're in, both from a market segmentation standpoint, as well as from how much policy is having an impact across the entire curve, and really make a significant judgment on uh, on, uh, on on where the economy is going. I will say one thing, though, is that um, I I do think that this kind of normalization that's occurred this year and the steepening of the U.S. yield curve tells you a little bit about two things. One is the prospects for additional fiscal policy and an enormous amount of government issuance on the long end of the curve. With rates so low, it obviously makes an enormous amount of sense for uh, the uh, the federal government to issue debt. Um, they're doing that. They're going to do a lot more of it. And secondly, it tells you a little bit about um, uh, uh, kind of where we stand from a mo- monetary policy standpoint. Obviously, uh, money has been very easy, big increase in money supply. And so there are some in the marketplace that think that on the long end, you're starting to price in some level of a level of inflation. I think that's overrated. I think that inflation is going to be maybe a story five to 10 years from now, not something that investors, whether it's equity investors or fixed income investors, need to start positioning for. So let, let's stick with the idea of, um, uh, of how the yield curve has been manipulated, managed, whatever word you, you want to use. Did you ever imagine 10, 15 years ago that you would see so many yields gone negative uh, all around the world? And, and is that a realistic possibility of negative rates occurring in the U.S.? So 10, 15 years ago, no. Uh, when I was taking economics classes, no, they, you know, when rates were 8, 9%, uh, they didn't say, well, you know, what does it take for rates to become negative? That wasn't kind of even, even discussed. Uh, so the answer is no, but when you think about the environment we're in, you think about, um, economics, uh, there is some intuition around negative rates. Uh, and now it's kind of the same discussion that we had earlier around trade-offs. So it's a trade-off. The ECB um, and the Bank of Japan made a decision to sacrifice savers for the benefit of, of, of industry and corporations to be able to uh, have access to financing, to incentivize savers to move out the risk spectrum, to buy equities, to make equity financing more attractive, to make debt financing more, uh, more, more attractive, to create more jobs, and to get the economy going. But it's at a, at a cost, and it's obviously at a cost on savers and a cost on, on, um, on, on financial institutions that rely upon uh, a shape of a yield curve and rely upon yield. Uh, I, I, I think that there is some merit to negative yields. The Fed doesn't want to make that trade-off. They've said that. But I would say that it is a policy outcome that could get there, could get there that either they decide to bring it there or the market brings it there. Envision a world where um, you see significant slowdown in global growth, equity markets trade off outside the U.S., and the U.S. is viewed as the safe haven. 
Fed lowers rates even more, starts to buy more, and the U.S. dollar is viewed as that only thing that's good and the safe haven currency, you can envision a situation where treasuries, maybe the Fed doesn't bring rates negative, but people decide that to store their wealth, they would rather be in a dollar-denominated asset that they have to pay something small than being an asset that has a lot of, a lot of risk. And so it's, it is a possibility, but from a policy standpoint, the U.S. has so far made a decision to, to, not, to not go there. Huh, interesting. You, you mentioned um, the likelihood of some form of fiscal stimulus and, and the need for further um, treasury issuance. We've been hearing rumors, I don't know, for about 10 years of a grand infrastructure build out, uh, which has yet to, to happen. It seems like a no brainer for the new administration. Any chance we see uh, longer dated bonds with rates this low, a 50 year? Treasury or even a hundred-year U.S. Treasury. I mean, if 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 I were at the Treasury, I would issue a thousand years at these rate levels. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, you know, why not? You're you're locking in, you know, financing for an extended period of time at, at dramatically lower yields, and it's very possible that yields further out on that yield curve are not meaningfully higher than where they are today. There's still a lot of demand for very long-dated cash flows from pension funds that, and insurance companies that are trying to match against, uh, match against liabilities. And as people live longer and longer, there's going to be more and more need for longer-dated uh, longer assets. So um, I could see that. To your question on infrastructure, I think it's going to, you know, it's really going to rely upon, assuming that we have a Republican Senate, it's going to rely upon whether or not the Biden administration is true to its word about working across the aisle, number one, and, and number two, if they're going to be successful at doing that. But there's a lot of need for, you know, I think right now the spending that needs to get done needs to be directly in the pockets of people that have been affected by COVID. But as we look out a couple of years, um, longer term, there needs to be a, a long-term investment plan for this country and a lot of countries. And infrastructure is going to be important. It's just a matter of whether or not the political will there is there to look at an investment that pays off in 5, 10, 15 years versus the way we look at things right now, which is all about today and tomorrow and how does it impact my poll numbers. So hopefully we get to the point where we make more rational long-term decisions. And I think if we do, I think that infrastructure is likely to be uh, meaningfully on the table. Huh, quite interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about duration. Um, you mentioned the yield curve has steepened, but not a whole lot. What, what's the difference between the three-month and the 10-year? It's, it's, I think, less than 100 bips last I looked. Uh, is, is that sort of duration risk worth it? It, it? Normally, in a steeper yield curve, obviously, you're getting paid much more uh, to lend out for a decade. What what are you thinking in terms of duration, and and are we going to continue to see such a relatively modest um, yield curve for for the foreseeable future? So, your your the answer to your question can be very different for um, who am I. Or who am I representing as an investor, as a fiduciary, um, in terms of how I answer that question? So this kind of um, bleeds into the topic of kind of the 60-40 dynamic and do, do, do bonds at very low yields 
still offer investors protection against kind of growth and uh, and, and and risk assets. And I think that at um, 80, 90, 100 basis points in that area, you still have a meaningful amount of upside. And back to my point earlier, it is possible that rates break the lower bound of zero in the event that you have a significant global uh, global recession. So I think that um, 80, 90 basis points in terms of owning 10-year treasuries it doesn't feel really good, but it's still, when you look at equities and how um, equities have performed so well, you don't want to just own equities unprotected. And I still think in the rate market, whether it's the U.S., whether it's the other markets I talked about earlier, you're still getting some very significant hedge benefit. But when you look outright at the U.S. market at you know, 80, 90 basis points, 100 basis points on the 10-year, is that a great 5- to 10-year investment? Probably not. I would say as an individual, I would much rather own longer data municipals. Um, I think I get a lot of the upside in the event that rates come down and there's a slowdown in the economy, and I'm getting on a tax-adjusted basis a lot more yield. I, uh, and, then, and then lastly, as a active investor in fixed income, do I want to be overweight duration or underweight duration? Um, I would say that calling the rate move is a really, really tough one. And I think having an appropriate allocation across fixed income equities and other asset classes is the way really to think about it. But I will say that I think the Fed's going to be on hold for a long period of time. And as the 10-year Treasury trades in in a range from 50 basis points to 150 basis points, because you get out to 100 basis points, you probably want to own a little bit more interest rate risk as the Fed's going to be on hold. And I think that inflation, particularly in the U.S., is going to stay very modest, well below below the Fed's target. Interesting. Well, a lot of people agree with you. We continue to see record inflows uh, into fixed income ETFs, despite interest rates as low as they are. What are your thoughts uh, about that? Who who are the buyers of those fixed income ETFs? Is that um, Main Street or is that more of an institutional investor? What what are your thoughts uh, on the activity in that space? So we, we talked a little bit earlier about how um, fixed income ETFs have been a little bit slower to be adopted because of active managers having more success. Um, but this year, you're actually seeing more flows into bond ETFs than you're seeing in equity ETFs for the first time. So there's no question that ETFs are being used much more actively. I would say two main holders, uh, investors. Number one is the, and and you know the world uh, a lot better than I do, the RIA community, the uh, wealth managers in the marketplace that have kind of converted their business model from more of an open-ended model to really one that is driven by liquidity and low fees within ETFs. Those are, I think, that the, the dominant players, that you're seeing more model portfolios that include ETFs, mainly for the purpose of um, access to different segments of the marketplace. So the good thing about ETFs is that you can carve up and you can have an industrial only or this only or double B only and so on and so on. So there's a lot of ability to be able to carve portfolios in a more customized way. And the fees are, are very low. Secondly, is you have um, some institutional players that um, use ETFs as a way to either gain very quick exposure intraday or to um, uh, basically um, uh, exercise um, uh, arbitrage uh, in, in, in between kind of the cash underlying securities that exist in the ETF and the ETF. I would say that those are 
the dominant players within uh, the ETF market. There's no free lunch that ETFs gives an investor. Um, people think that, well, the liquidity is so much better in ETFs. And, uh, you know, the liquidity in ETFs on a day when there's very little trading might be a little bit better than the underliers. But in a risk environment, in a credit risk environment, when there's a risk off or, or a lot of risk on, liquidity of ETFs are only as good as the, uh, the underliers. So I think it really comes down to um, segmentation, the ability to be able to specifically target certain parts of the market as a RIA or an investor that's trying to target specific risks, and then secondly, to uh, to to get lower fees than what's available in the open-ended uh, open-ended space. Now, we as an active manager, um, we are obviously have the ability to be able to buy bonds. We try to buy bonds that we think can outperform the index. We've done a good job of that. We also will use ETFs from time to time, but really as a way to get risk on in the market very quickly or in periods of time where. ETF liquidity um, is better than the cash market. And, and one thing we've seen in the credit yeah. markets and the COVID shock is that there was a lot of transparency that existed in ETFs. The, the physical bond market was frozen, but ETFs still traded. Um, and so as a result, when you didn't see a lot of trading in bonds, you actually saw ETFs trade and got a lot of price transparency. And so we'll use that as another source of transfer of risk. And so you're finding that a lot of investors are actually using it for that purpose, short-term trades, get exposure, and then eventually to work into single-name exposure within the cash market. So, so let's stay with that for a minute. Ba back in March, when everything went sideways, um, and, and both in equities and bonds, we did see a fairly substantial dislocation in the bond market, and some of the ETF pricing looked wildly out of whack. Was it really the underlying that was the problem? There was no pricing and liquidity, so ETF traders were just making their best guess. What, what went wrong back then when the NAVs uh, seemed to be not exactly on the money? So uh, I, I, I think what happened was was that you had a very, very quick move in the cash underliers, and then you had a lag in the equity prices of ETFs, causing, to some degree, some premiums to be very high or discounts to be very wide. That can happen for a very short period of time. I will say, though, that at that time, particularly the COVID crisis, in credit, in high-yield and investment-grade credit areas that really froze up, and there was a massive lack of price transparency in the cash market, um, ETFs still traded. Investors, RIAs, individuals, they wanted to get out. And so what happened was, was they have to um, get to a price that can obviously clear the market. But when you're trading an equity or an ETF, you have two variables you're thinking about. One is, can I then sell that ETF to somebody else? And what price do I need to move it down to be able to bring in an investor? That wasn't the environment because there were only sellers at the time. So what was going on was a estimate by the ETF liquidity providers on what is the right price? How far down are these cash bonds? Now, I will tell you that the traditional liquidity providers and ETFs aren't fixed income experts to a great degree that they can actually do that. So what happened was players like us jumped in and said, okay, we'll buy that ETF. We'll buy it down three points or five points or whatever, because we have a 
high degree of confidence on how to value the underliers. So there was a mismatch for a very short period of time between where equities cleared and what the actual pricing was on the underliers, but it was a reality that people just didn't know what the underliers were worth. Hmm. But all told, it, it sorted itself out pretty quickly, and the fact that there was even any liquidity at all is, uh, was quite, quite a surprise. And exactly players like you are the reason why the ETF prices eventually came back to where um, they were rational. Am I overstating that, or is that a, no, is that a fair assessment? No, absolutely, absolutely accurate. And I will say that this level of dislocation that occurred between the cash market and the ETF market, between the cash and the synthetic market and credit, was very, 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 I think I said that three times, concerning to the Fed. And this is one of the reasons why the Fed decided to do something extremely unprecedented. The Fed stepped in and said, we're not just going to buy 12-year treasuries because they're cheap to 10-year treasuries. We're not just going to provide um, funding to the, the money markets. We're not just going to buy agency mortgages to drive down the cost for homeowners and refinancing, but we're actually going to get into the credit market because the credit market, and particularly the cash market, is frozen. So they now have a plan to buy individual bonds, provide direct funding, buy ETFs in the credit market, uh, and, and also extend lending and potentially buy municipals as well. So very unprecedented action because of these these kind of dislocations that occurred and the lack of transparency. And what did it do? It actually caused that that um, you know that arbitrage between ETFs and cash bonds to eventually go away. Uh, and it also reopened the capital markets to allow companies to get back to issue debt to be able to bridge themselves past the uh, past the economic crisis. Quite quite fascinating. Before we get to our favorite questions, I have to at least ask you about some of the funds that that your team manages and the four big ones I'm looking at government income fund core fixed income fund bond fund and strategic income funds I know compliance gives you limited things you're allowed to say about them um, but broadly tell us about the strategic differences uh, between those groups so um Government income, as stated, is a combination of government securities as well as agency mortgage securities. So super high quality, um, a decent amount of duration there, but not a credit-oriented product. Uh, core product um, is a core holding for people. So as we think of 60-40 allocation, something like a core fund is critical to balance in a portfolio relative to equity and risk assets. The idea in a core fund, investment grade only, agency mortgages, treasuries, agency debt, as well as investment grade credit. And so our view about it's really important that you have your, the chunk of your fixed income allocation in super high quality to avoid situations that we experienced like in the 0708 shock where people had the 60-40 allocation, but when they woke up the next day and rates were down, they figured out that their 40 was also down uh, because it had a lot of credit and, and, and subprime mortgages and things like that in there. So core is, by definition, core. 
Then you have our GS Bond product, which is more of a, it's a Bloomberg aggregate product like Core, but it can do high yield and emerging market debt. So it, it's intended to be part of your fixed income, but have more satellite, higher return type strategies to um, increase the, uh, the yield. And then strategic, by definition, is strategic. It can go kind of anywhere. Um, and so there, it's a LIBOR-based product. So not it doesn't have five years or seven years of duration, potentially like the other products, but it is a cash-based product where it's kind of more of an absolute return product where you can go anywhere within the fixed income markets. And so that product is trying to generate a little bit higher levels of return without taking on the interest rate risk. Hmm. I'm glad I, I asked about that. I'm sure our listeners are going to be uh, quite interested in that. These are our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. And since we're talking about COVID and the lockdown, let, let's start right, right with that. What are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite work from home, uh, Netflix, Amazon uh, videos you're watching. So favorite on the video side, um, I would say was a recent movie that I think was very relevant as we were kind of in a very you know, critical election for our country was the trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, not sure if it was Netflix or Amazon Prime, but an amazing movie about the history of the hippie movement and the protests that the hippies um, uh, and, and uh, went to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago to protest uh, against the Democratic Party, the war, um, and kind of, uh, and, and then a number of them got arrested. And the, the reason it was, number one, the acting was unbelievable. Sasha Baron Cohen's in it. He plays Abby Hoffman. Uh, and uh, Abby Hoffman actually went to the same college as me as Brandeis. And so I just found that movie to be uh, very telling. And it's, it's kind of a, um, a story about if you think something's going wrong, speak up and do something about it. So I would say from a from a, a movie perspective and streaming, that was uh, that was definitely number one. Huh. That is my Netflix queue, and um, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Let Let's talk about your early mentors. Who affected um, the way you look at fixed income? Who helped guide your career? So um, I would say that two people very early in my career, early Lehman Brothers, had a pretty big impact, and it was less about kind of over the course of a long period of time, but single events that had a real big impact on me. And, and so one was this gentleman, Mike McKeever, who headed a lot of capital markets. I think he ended up running banking at, 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 at Lehman. Um, he put me in charge of very early in my career, within the first few months, of, of uh, recounting what happened in the European markets from an issuance standpoint uh, overnight so that people, when they came in, they were speaking to their clients about the U.S. markets, had some context for what happened in Europe. And somebody asked me a question about um, during the meeting about a European issuer, and I kind of hesitated, and I kind of gave an answer like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what happened, in a way that Mike McKeever very much knew that I didn't know what I was talking about. And so in the meeting, he called me out and said, are you 100% sure? that um, your answer is correct? And I said, uh, not really. He said, and in the meeting, he said, this is not high school anymore. This is not college. If you're not, if you're not sure, you say you're not sure and you get back to someone. But you're talking about people's careers, our clients' money at stake, and you can't fake it. And so obviously I was distraught and couldn't believe that somebody tore me to shreds in front of a lot of people, but he was 100% right, and it kind of helped me very early in my career to uh, um, uh, uh, take work seriously and that the facts matter. Huh. 
Quite, quite interesting. Let, let's talk about books. What are you, some of your favorites, and what are you reading currently? Uh, a bunch. So um, I kind of have a theme uh, in the books that I read. Almost all are uh, nonfiction. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, the, the, the two themes are I read a lot on investments, and I read a lot about um, income inequality and uh, historical racism in, in, in our country. And so the, the few books that I can think of that, that really kind of uh, had an impact on me was Devil in the Grove, uh, which is an amazing book about Thurgood Marshall and his plight into the South, particularly into Florida, to help um, uh, wrongly accused um, uh, black men who were accused of uh, either murders or were put in put in jail for life or actually um, actually uh, um, sentenced to death, and to go into these places and, and defend them. And I think that there obviously been a lot of books and movies um, since, but this specific story about um, a gentleman in Florida had uh, just a massive impact uh, uh, impact on me. Um, Just Mercy is a very similar book, recent recent movie, and, and a very similar topic. Um, one other um, on income inequality, Hill, Hillbilly Elegy, which now there's a movie out. Um, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I did read the book. And um, kind of thinking about the, the broader issues that exist across our country, why there's a lot of political um, issues, um, racist racism issues, income inequality issues, very, very impactful, impactful book. Um, and then on the investment side, this is going back a while, but David Dreeman's book on contrarian investing, um, had a had a pretty significant impact on me, and uh, and and his book is a lot about um, uh, um, behavioral behavioral science, behavioral economics, and you know not always following the trend. So being a contrarian investor, most bond investors are, uh, but looking at investing from a different lens than everybody else has had, had a pretty big impact on me. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested? in a career on the fixed income side of the street? Well, I would say, first off, just in terms of um, people entering the capital markets, financial markets, any, any, any part of finance, the most important thing is not to worry about what you're doing, and it's more to worry about who you're doing it with and who you're around. And I think in the first five to ten years of your career, don't worry about what you're going to be when you grow up. That doesn't really matter. What matters more is that you're around smart people that can teach you and are willing to teach you. And, and, and you will then figure out what direction you want to take your, take your career. So I, I really think that's important. And, and on top of that, you want to be in a diverse environment. And the word diversity obviously can mean a lot of different things. It can mean diverse, obviously, racial backgrounds, gender, but it also you want to be around diverse ideas. And it's really important. You don't want to be in an environment where everybody thinks the same. The way you learn is by being exposed to kind of uh, things that are very, very diverse. So I think that's most important. Don't worry about what you want to do when you grow up. Be around smart people. You'll figure it out. Good advice. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing in fixed income today that you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you first got started? I'd first maybe like to answer the question um, around just investing overall as in you know, giving younger people some advice around investing. I think that the, the most important thing, develop a plan, stick to the plan, and don't look at it. 
And that is true for people who are non-investors, but it's also true for people who are investors. We often get scared out of our uh, out of our shorts when we see events occurring, and we'll go to cash because we think we can be smarter than the market. Don't do that. Develop a plan. Develop a diversified diversified plan for your investing, and don't look at it. And stay very consistent in terms of uh, in terms of in, in, in investing. In terms of the fixed income portion of that, um, I would say probably the same thing goes. Um, by the same token that I thought that um, rates at 8% or 9% when I started my career looked pretty expensive because rates two years or three years prior were 11 or 12%, don't think that you're smarter than the market. Think about your client. Think about the type of portfolio and type of risk you're, you, you want to take and be very thoughtful about asset allocation and diversification. And I think that that is the most important lesson, and I think it's true with regard to an individual in, in multi-asset investing, and I think it's also true as a fixed-income investor. Thanks, Mike, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Mike Swell, who runs fixed-income portfolio management for Goldman Sachs. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our almost 400 other such conversations where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things finance. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you regularly get your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure to give us guest suggestions at that email address. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>